When I first started preaching, uh, my dad would come and hear me preach every single week. And at the end of the sermon, the next day on Monday, he would show up and he would have a three-by-five card. And on that three-by-five card would be a series of hash marks next to the words, and, um, and you know. And I would have a tally mark with the total. Son, you had, you said, and 39 times. You said, um, 57 times. You said, you know, 36 times. Now, I would get that card and he would say that to me. And do you know what I heard him say, even though he wasn't saying it? Son, you're a terrible preacher. What business do you have getting up Sunday after Sunday and having any business talking to anybody about anything? Now, that's not what he had in his heart. That's not what he was trying to do. He was trying to help me out. But what I heard was something that was unsaid. I say that because I want to talk about the gospel this week and next week. The gospel is the good news of what God has done. But in order to talk about the gospel, I have to talk about sin. And here's the thing. If I were to go to Asbury University this week, and if I were to parade all around Isaiah, and I were to do this, and I were to say, I never had sex with Jenny before we got married. And you know what? Sex outside of marriage is wrong. It's a sin. And when you have sex outside of marriage, it makes you a fornicator, and fornicators go to hell. And if I were to say that, those things would be true, but every single Asbury student who heard that would not be hearing that. What they would be hearing is, oh, you're judging me, and you think you're better than me, and you're just, you know, doing this sliding scale thing. Asbury students would come to a, a, a wrong conclusion in some ways, right? Um, so I have to acknowledge that it's really hard to talk about sin in America these days. It's really hard to talk about sin. Anytime you do, when any pastor, rabbi, religious leader who says, I'll just go with what I just named, that sex outside of marriage is a sin, right? Because of teachings in the Bible and blah, blah, blah. Like as soon as it comes out of our mouths, oh, they're being judgy. They're being, and you know what? They're hypocrites. We are hypocrites. I'm a hypocrite. I don't know if you know this. All of y'all are hypocrites because we're all sinners. So when I talk about sin, I have to acknowledge right out of the bat that your pastor is a sinner, okay? It's not because I'm better than other people. It's not because I got things figured out than other people. I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I'm a sinner who needs the gospel, just like you do. So I have to talk about sin in order to talk about the gospel. And the other thing we Americans do is we tend to make sin an out there thing. So we all agree that there are some horrible people out there, aren't there? Come on, it's church. Let's get on your A game and your amen game. Come on. There are some horrible people out there, aren't there? Amen. There are people, horrible parents who lock their kids in closets and don't feed them. There are horrible young men who date rape women at college frat parties. There are horrible politicians and billionaires enriching themselves at the expense of everybody else. The world is messed up. Things are not as they should be. And we know this with certainty. But when you start talking about sin on a personal level, my sin, your sin, whoa, whoa, 
people do the whole thing of, listen, I know I'm not perfect. I'm so sorry. Uh, you got to be kidding me. If you had only known what my childhood was like, or if you knew what I had to deal with. And so Americans tend to talk about uh, sin in terms of language of psychology. So we, we will all acknowledge, well, I've got issues. I've got issues. My family, whew, man, they've got issues. Let me tell you about my parents, right? And so we use language of psychology, but we're really talking about the brokenness of everybody because sin is the brokenness of humanity. Um, I find it interesting, 65% of Americans, 65% of Americans believe that everyone sins a little bit, but that most people are good. This is what Americans believe. So in other words, Americans believe that, you know, everybody kind of messes up a little bit, but if, if kids just had the right opportunities and the right parenting and the right schools, like they'd just be amazing human beings. Hold your laughter. <laughs> People, they do. 74% of Americans believe that God would not or should not condemn people to eternal damnation for a little sin. So in other words, Americans believe that they sin a little bit and that it's no big deal. That's what most Americans conclude. So I want to, again, I want to talk about the gospel, but in order to talk about the gospel, about the good news of what God has done for us, I got to talk about us and what we've done for us, <laughs> which means I got to talk about sin. And so I'm, I'm going to be in the book of Romans, Romans chapter one, which is just a ferocious passage. And I want to share a little bit about what Paul has to say about sin. So in, of the books in the Bible, a lot of people will talk about the book of Romans as like a, a book about the gospel. In the opening pages of it, he says, uh, this letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news, the good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So in Romans chapter 118, he starts talking about sin, and he says this, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So, in other words, God is angry. There's a wrath-anger component where God is offended by the sin that people commit. And this sinful and wicked, the two Greek words mean a lack of reverence toward God. So, we were made to love God. We were made to love each other. We mess that up, and God considers it a kind of personal offense or an affront. And I'll unpack that a little bit in just a moment. In the next couple of verses, verses 19 and 20, they, that's us, they know the truth about God because he, made, uh, because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. So Paul is saying, look, even though you can't see God with your own eyes, you can see enough of what he's created that you go... Eh, it's probably a God. <laughs> it's probably pretty powerful. And Paul is saying you can't claim ignorance. So by way of analogy, I want, hopefully this will help you understand the wrath-anger component. When you get married and you have kids, there's something about you that thinks you absolutely have the right to tell those kids what to do. 
to teach those kids, this is how you do something. You don't do it that way, you do it this way. And if somebody else comes into your business as a parent and says, oh no, don't you do it that way, you get a little crotchety, don't you? That's my kid, that's not your kid. I have every right to tell that kid how, you know, you don't have that right at all, you're not their parent. And so God, in a sense, if he made us, he has that kind of right to have a sense of telling us how we ought to live and what we ought to do. And Paul unpacks this even more in verses 21 and following. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Dark and confused. I don't know if you know this, but it is possible to be unaware of just how bad sin is. It's it's possible to to do something that you believe is right and helpful and yet be completely wrong about it. Um, Part of what Paul is describing here, I've never seen an episode, but I'm familiar with the TV series Dexter. It's about a serial killer. Part of the character in that show is that he's cunning, innovative, All of these things that in some ways reflect God's glory, glory, but it's depraved in what he's using it for (laughs) in butchering people, right? So this is what Paul is talking about in these passages. So he's saying, look, sin is very, very bad. It moves you away from God. And he kind of sums this up in verse 23. He says, instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Um, We have this tendency to think that people who lived a long time ago were stupid. In other words, um, you know, oh, look, I made this cup. I will now worship this cup as though it is my God. People were not that dumb 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. The idols that they made, the objects they made were representations of what they believed a deity to be. And so you as Americans, we as Americans, we worship all kinds of things that we turn to to tell us who we are for our identity, you know, wealth, status. um, There's all kinds of things. Uh, Success, wealth, a great figure or body, beauty, certain politicians, famous people, Star Trek ships. There are all kinds of things that you can make an idol in your life, okay? And it leads to nothing good. And so... All the way down in verse 29, he kind of summarizes it this way. He says, their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent new ways of sinning. They disobey their parents. They refuse to understand They break their promises. They're heartless. They have no mercy. Can I just ask a simple question? Based on what he just described, would you like living in a family like that or a city like that or a nation like that where those kinds of things are celebrated? No, you wouldn't. But that's what happens when sin runs its course. And so he sums it up in verse 32. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do so. 
Imagine for a moment that you have been invited to go into prison and you encounter two different types of people. Uh, and you, one prisoner you encounter, he says this to you. Yeah, I murdered my cousin. I was angry. I was young. I was stupid. And you know what? I'm sorry for what I did. I had no right to take his life. I wish I could go back to the younger version of me and explain how things really are. And then you meet another guy, and he says this. Are you kidding me? My cousin was a dope. He deserved it. I did him a favor. The judge should thank me. Do you see the difference between the two? Which world would you rather live in? So Paul, again, in verse 18, he says, God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people. And then he spells it out in chapter 2, and he says this. Because you're stubborn and refuse to turn for your sin, you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For a long time, I struggled with the concept of God's wrath. And then I had kids. And I understand it now. Uh, Your kids can do things that elicit the most ferocious response out of you because you made them and because you love them so much. The worst thing, one of the worst things a parent can do with their kids is, eh, whatever, I don't care. I don't care. If God took that approach with the world that he had made, what kind of God would he be? Oh, look, the humans are killing themselves again. I wonder what else is going on in the galaxy. Eh, like, what? What kind of God would that be? Terrible, absolutely terrible. So at the end of the day, I know it's the case, and you've heard preachers talk about this before. When it comes to my sin, I want mercy. When it comes to other people's sin, I want justice. (laughs) And therein lies the problem. Therein lies the problem. Now, some modern contemporary people like to do the whole, well, this is Paul, and Paul was killing Christians before he had that weird vision on the road to Damascus. You know, Jesus was so forgiving. Like, Jesus Jesus wasn't that way with people. Well, I want to point out one passage, just one passage from Luke chapter 11. Jesus says this. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Now, we preachers preach on this passage all the time, and we focus on the, well, since human dads give good gifts to their children, your heavenly Father will give you good gifts even more in abundance. That's where we tend to camp out and focus. But Jesus, remember from a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is God. So when Jesus says something, it means God is saying something. When Jesus does something, it means God is doing something. When Jesus feels something, God is, he's telling you, hey, God feels this way about this thing, okay? So in the Greek, it's, it's the you, plural. So we, in the South, that's all y'all. So Jesus is saying all y'all, and then the second Greek word is being evil. He, and he says that. This is, he's talking to his disciples and everybody. And Jesus says, all y'all being evil. <laughs> God's take on things. 
God's take on things, okay? So let me ask a few questions in light of this, in light of the fact it's so hard to talk about sin and it's so hard to see ourselves and know ourselves. Let me ask this question first of all. What's, what's the primary sin that tends to dog you these days, that eats you for lunch, that you're like, man? Secondly, um, have you confessed to someone else this pattern of sin in your life? Some of you are looking at me like, whoa, you're going all Catholic on me, Max. What's going on in this church? And wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. When I say to somebody, I'm a sinner, I'm acknowledging truth. I'm acknowledging reality. If I say, uh, I lost my temper however many months ago and I yelled at my wife in anger, right? I'm simply truth-telling. I'm telling the truth. I'm acknowledging reality. And Jesus said the truth will do what? Ah, sometimes the truth is something we don't want to name and we don't want to face, but the truth can set you free. And so there is a power in acknowledging truth, particularly sin truth, to someone else, a trusted friend, a pastor. I don't want to necessarily be your priest every day in a you know, dark room with the curtain, but like there's a power in acknowledging and naming this to a close friend, somebody you're in small group with that can keep confidence and you can acknowledge, hey, I sin when I did X or you know what? And you're just naming truth and there's something powerful that happens in that. Lastly, um, I think it'll advance. Maybe it won't. Oh. Well, he'll, he'll get my next picture up. Have you seen, there you go, have you seen the effects of sin? My last question is, have you seen the effects of sin or the consequences of sin in your own life or in your family history? Most of us can see the consequences of sin in our family of origin. It's obvious. It's clear. I could spend a whole week mapping out. I've done a whole genome of my entire family, things that I got from my parents, they got from their parents, they got from their parents before them, and patterns of sin that have come down in Team Vanderpool, Rubino, Mercurio, Griffin, <laughs> that makes me where I am, right? Um, so have you seen the effects of sin in your own life or in your family's life? So ways that you and I can take this home, right? First of all, name it. I sin when I. Today, sometime today, name one or two things. Because here's, here's what happens. Uh, over time, church-going Americans, we're sitting in church, we're listening to the sermon, we're singing the songs, we're doing the activities, we're showing up at the food pantry. And over time, even though in our heads we know that we're saved by grace, even though that we know we're sinners and that we need a gospel of good news, we start to feel like, you know, I'm certainly better than my cousin Nancy. She sucks. And like we have this heart thing where we almost feel like God owes us a little bit. And then when things, bad things start happening in our life, we're, we're crotchety with God. Is this how you do me? Like, how are you treating me? Like, because God owes us something, right? We have this feeling on the inside. So I just want to uh, say a good part is to name it, right? Name it. And then secondly, own it. Uh Owning it means to acknowledge that it's you. Um, one of the things that we get honestly from our, our parents of origin, Adam and Eve, don't know if you've ever heard of them, they are the original blame shifters. 
fee-fi-fo-funk somebody ate from the tree of knowledge. Whoa, you know that woman you put in the garden? What, that man? Like, blame shift. I would never, if my wife would, then I would not have to. Or if my dad had, I would never. Like, we do this blame shifting thing where we're just trying to put it off on other people. Own it. And then lastly, abandon the American bell curve myth, okay? Americans totally buy into this notion of good enough. Like, I can't tell you how many conversations where I've asked somebody open-endedly, do you believe in an afterlife? Oh, great. How does that work? Well, you know, if you, if you do this and, you know, you go to church or if you pray or if you become like Mother Teresa or, you know, they've got, they've got different things but they all articulate this kind of, you have to be good enough to go to heaven. That's not how it works. That's not the gospel. That's not what God did through Jesus Christ. So there are two groups of people that actually, as it turns out in America, they don't need the gospel, what I'm going to get into next week. They don't need it. The first group is the religious group I just talked about. They, don't, they think they don't need it. They need it, Josh. <laughs> The first group of the religious people that I just talked about, they come into churches, they sit in the pews, they do the good works, they, they bring the potlucks every time somebody dies. Like, they do everything right, so they think. And they think they're better than the people out there, and they feel like at some level, you know, God should be grateful I'm on his team. They don't need the gospel. They think they're in because of what they're doing. That's work stuff. That's silly, but American churchgoers often feel it without knowing it. Um, and then there's the other group, and they're the relativists. And they're the people that are like, well, just follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Live your truth. Whatever it is you feel, as long as you authentically express it, two thumbs up. And they don't need the gospel in either because they're fine just the way they are, right? So both groups deny any kind of needing of the gospel, and both groups are wrong. So I want to end kind of where I began today. It's difficult to talk about sin in America. It's the weirdest thing. I have the hardest time as a pastor talking about this with people, talking like, you know, if we're talking about other people's sin or my parents' sin, like it, sin has gotten very complicated to talk about, and yet it's everywhere. It's in you, it's in me, it's all over the place. It's the weirdest thing in the world. So, um, I find a helpful analogy for me in the uh, people who do 12-step recovery programs. So I don't know if you know this, but step one, step one is this admitting that you're an addict, that you have a problem, and that you're powerless to overcome it. I think a lot of American churchgoers could use that step one when it comes to gospel good news and the nature of sin. <laughs> I'm a sinner. That's what I am. I'm powerless to overcome this on my own, and I need help. I need rescuing, okay? So next week, I want to lay out what the gospel is and why it's really good news. But today, in order to get there, I had to lay out what the problem that you and I face. And here's, here, here it is for you and me. You can't fix yourself. There's no amount of self-help. There's no amount of therapy. There's no amount of coaching. There's no amount of education. There's no amount of money. There's no amount of anything that's going to fix the brokenness 
on the inside, the sin, the rebelling against God, all the stuff that leads to death and everything else that's wrong with this world. But God has made a way to make things right. And I want to talk about that next week. But in order to do that, I had to paint the stage today. 